Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we're streaming live at WCEV1450.com. We welcome you to another edition of Radio Islam. If you're new to the Radio Islam family, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can also check out those episodes that you have missed. And I'm going to give you two places you can go. First, you can go to RadioIslam.com and you can get info on our previous guests and a lot of other great content. And you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn, you will find us at that same username. That's at Radio Islam USA. Now, for those of you who would like to go beyond tweeting us or posting on our Facebook page, and both of those things are open, you can also call us at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. Radio Islam family, we've got to say, uh, because the last time we talked, we were still in the month of Ramadan, and now we have come through that. We have enjoyed the festivities of the Eid. And uh, we pray that everyone had a beautiful celebration, are uh, feeling well, and have gotten back uh, used to day eating and day drinking. Uh, right? These, these are mercies. These are wonderful things. So I had myself a nice cup of coffee just about an hour ago. So that was, that was really great. So anyhow, um, family, we've got a lot to talk about as usual. And I'm really pleased this evening to have joining us in studio a, um, a brother, a, a, a scholar um, that I have tremendous respect and admiration for, Dr. Babakar Mbenge. Dr. Babakar teaches at DePaul University's Islamic World Studies Program, uh, Religious Studies Department, and History Department. He also teaches Islam and Politics and International Relations at Loyola University, Chicago. Uh, Dr. Mbenge received his PhD in Arabic and Islamic Studies at Sheikh Anta Diop University in Dakar, Senegal. He's also received degrees from various universities, including Sorbonne Nouvelle University in Paris and Cambridge University. Uh, he's a Fulbright Scholar with residence at Loyola University of Chicago. And his fields of research include Islam, Islam in Africa, Islamic banking and finance, Islamic law of contract, Islam in politics, world history, and international relations. Right? I mean, yeah, so you see where I'm going, right? We, we have... Yeah, we have a heavyweight in here with us tonight. So we are, mashallah, we are really pleased to have him here. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not even going to say anything else because, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't want to I don't, I don't go any further. I just want to say thank you for being here and assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, brother Tariq and brother Imam. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, yes, indeed, you, indeed. Likewise, likewise. So studying having having such varied interests and in-depth uh, uh, scholarly interest within the continent of Africa and I say continent of Africa because as we were talking beforehand uh, <laughs> when I was asking what's one of the things that you'd like for people to know about Africa and your response was <laughs> yeah Africa is a continent unlike uh, many perceptions yeah. actually tend to see or believe of Africa as a country 
Yeah. So just to, to give you a, a, a type of uh, an idea, a type of proportion, mm -hmm. uh, continental Africa is three times the size of continental U uh, the U United States, which actually, you know, uh, speak of the uh, vastness of the continent, but mm -hmm. also the diversity of cultures and, you know, realities on the continent itself. Right. Mm. And that, that is something that is often lost. Right. And I think it, we, we almost here uh, within the, the Western context, we often have a it's synonymous with Africa and, and country. Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Without realizing, as right. you say, there are many different uh, there are regions and there, yeah. there are different um, uh, uh, ethnic groups. Absolutely. Uh, there, uh, the, the demographics, the, the geography is different. That, that plays a role in, in the formation of society. And uh, so, yeah, so there's quite a bit uh, to it. Um, you did, you, you gave a lecture not too long ago. I was told about it. Mm -hmm. I found it extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. And it was regarding the Sahara Desert. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about the implications or its effect on uh, migration and something to the effect of seeing it as an ocean. What was, what was that about? Because that's certainly not something that people think about generally when they think about the Sahara. Right. I mean, I, I think the, 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 the uh, Sahara is a very um, important part of Africa. And there is that tendency also to think of the Sahara as a small place. And to give also another um, idea of proportion, it is actually the size of continental United States. The Sahara. Is. The Sahara itself. So uh, it is vast, and it actually uh, uh, implies a lot of you know uh, dynamics in itself. So it is a very lively uh, type of region, even if in appearance it might sound like a, a place of death or basically a dead you know area. Right. Uh, but um, uh, it has for a long time. Uh, serve as a type of a bridge between what we usually call North Africa and what we call Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. So um, a, a very important uh, connection that actually in large part explained Islamization in parts, you know, of West Africa and other places of, you know, the continent overall. So there were particular trade routes that were, that the, the Sahara uh, uh, is a part of. Right. That connected these two different uh, that connected these two different regions. Absolutely. Right? So those are known as the Trans-Saharan Trade Routes, mm -hmm. which actually uh, included uh, important cities on each side of that basically uh, divide, so to speak. You know, right. uh, uh, to no, known as termini, uh, which actually uh, played important role in basically connecting different cultures, but also spreading. Uh, knowledge and realities uh, across uh, the continent. And today, is is that still is that still the case? Does it still um, represent that same type of uh, connection? Uh, absolutely. I think, it, especially in light of the recent events that actually have been taking place in countries such as Mali, um, Niger, which mm -hmm. actually have come to the, at the forefront of uh, the news in the U.S., uh, we saw the place or the, uh, we, uh, the uh, uh, re, uh, you know, consideration of the Sahara as an important place that actually shaped in many ways, you know, uh, relationship, 
you know, on the continent, but also the profile of the continent in itself. Mm. So um, definitely a, a moment when basically we can uh, bear proof, you know, to the role of the Sahara uh, within the shaping of the African continent. Now, that's something that outsiders, I would say Europeans, in, uh, uh, for example, had to be educated uh, about how to navigate that particular um, th that particular landmass, right. uh, because there have been people who have who have ventured off into it, uh, never to be seen again. Uh, because just just in living there, there's a certain uh, knowledge and skill set that goes along with being navig to navigate that. Absolutely, no, definitely. I mean, it is um, uh, a, a region that doesn't land to any uh, adventurer, you know, easily. So in that it actually requires some understanding, but also good knowledge of the, of the, of the uh, lay of the land. And there are actually speak uh, a number of population who actually call the Sahara home, yeah. you know, including those who were known as the Tuareg. Mm -hmm. In the past, they actually were known sometimes as the Moon, you know, in Arabic, those were the veiled face. Right. And uh, they're known as being expert in navigating the Sahara, knowing where basically to find water, how to survive. Uh, it's, uh, obviously, it is a very deadly uh, area in that it actually has quite a uh, its share of basically um, uh, dangers and risk, you know, right. uh, which actually makes the Sahara quite a, a challenge for anybody seeking to basically, uh, you know, navigate the continent one way or the other. Right. But when it comes to something like this idea of Orientalism mm -hmm. uh, and looking at a, a place like the Sahara where we impose, I shouldn't say we, where Western cultural norms and values are imposed on a place like the Sahara to say that because it doesn't resemble our modern urban centers, right. that it's a, a place of, that it's a backward place or a place that has uh, no culture or, or no life or no history. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the, what are some of the, the, the inherent dangers in that type of thinking? Okay. I think um, problems, especially recent problems, uh, when it comes to the Sahara and uh, areas or, uh, surrounding the Sahara, and you could arguably say, uh, you know, uh, for the continent of Africa overall, is could tra be traced back to the um, establishment of what we call nation states. Nation states with their inherent European understanding in that while well, they actually were born out of Europe right. and at some point imposed on the continent with actually borders that do not always reflect to, uh, local dynamics which actually creates uh, tensions, you know, uh, as, we say, as we've seen in Mali, for example, and other places. So uh, by and large, it's fair to say that within the African continent, the imposition of those nation states and the borders that actually come with it has been also a problem, a problem that actually uh, to this day has, is, you know, complicating, basically, some of the issues we've seen uh, in the region. Uh, so bringing us uh, to, to today, mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, the the political dynamics once again because this is this is a great opportunity for us to kind of take a, a deep dive and and get a little more substance as a, as opposed to the, that 90 second newsreel mm -hmm. that may or may not even show up uh, but what are some of those political dynamics across such a vast um, uh, area uh, today that are affected by these imposed borders uh, that we might not really take into consideration when we 
when we look at things that are going on there. Right. So, I mean, there is this uh, recurrent problem of what we call irredentism, which is basically um, the pro um, pro uh, uh, that uh, tendency for some groups, for example, to relate more to another group located in a different uh, modern uh, state nation than they are to the uh, nation uh, state they are actually assigned to this um, in this day and age. Uh, that actually plays out in the case, for example, of Mali. North um, and South, yeah. Right. So we, in that, well, we've seen recently the creation of what that nation that actually was called Azawad, mm -hmm. which was seeking to break away from Mali, other right. uh, nation, because there was a sense that, well, the Azawad, uh, uh, you know, land or what was called Azawad, uh, uh, you know, uh, include populations that do not, you know, have the same cultural norms and realities than, for example, the southern part of Mali, right. which actually uh, also is, you know, one of the complications we, we, we can, you know, uh, see within the continent altogether. So uh, that was very much com uh, uh, complicated by the, uh, what we call the issue, uh, the issues coming from what we call the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. because um, with, for example, the collapse of the state in Libya, we've seen uh, a spreading of weapons, basically, right. into the region, which actually, you know, uh, brought to the forefront some of those issues that actually have been, you know, uh, underlying uh, for so long uh, in some of the part of the continent. Mm. So, from a political, from a political standpoint, there is an erasure of, I guess it would be proper to say, ethnic identities uh, that are encompassed under these man-made. Um, lines, uh, borders, uh, and and then people find themselves fighting against being erased. Right. Um, what are what, in your estimation, is there a uh, is there a fix for that? What what is the what is the best way to go about that? Is that simply to allow people like you mentioned Mali? I know that I was talking with some friends recently, and they were talking about how uh, the the French. I think it was the, the president right. came there and he he went straight to the north, right. and that saying that even the 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 Mali uh, their government officials right now say they can't set foot in the north. Uh, how how do, how do how does that type of tension uh, resolve itself? No, absolutely. I think it is it is a very complex. Uh, we have to admit that right away, a very complex situation that is not only uh, involving different ethnic group, but here the intervention of the former colonial power right. uh, is not also making things um, uh, easy, so to speak. Right. So uh, in that, it is, we, we, we cannot just, you know, talk about France as, a, you know, um, a major player, you know, right. uh, in that we've seen for, uh, French forces uh, time and time again, you know, intervening uh, in different uh, theaters of operation in Africa. And sometimes, you know, making um, local conflicts or giving local conflicts a global dimension, so to speak, right. you know, uh, by intervening. Uh, it's not just France, but other powers, such as the U.S., are oh, increasingly sure. uh, getting involved in the region, which mm -hmm. actually also tend to um, uh, give a certain profile, global profile, so to speak, uh, to, you know, uh, conflict that might have been local at some point or right. very, you know, contained. Some degree. Now, mm -hmm. now mention the United States involvement, mm -hmm. uh, how it enacts its foreign policy, who it supports, who it, with with arms or or or, or money, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, the impression that a lot of people have in the United States is that people are coming here simply because 
this is the best, right? Now, for, for all that, for, for all we do have here, uh, and it's not to discount that, I think we, we have a great deal of opportunity here, but it's often that these judgments are made while overlooking the fact that the natural resources for many countries throughout the African continent are controlled by former colonial powers. Absolutely. Um, whether they be mineral rights or even uh, fishing, you know, where people can't legally fish in their own ancestral homeland. Uh, so could you talk a bit about how those and other forces are contributing to uh, immigration here from, uh, you know, of, of Africans coming here? Absolutely. I think uh, uh, we, we've talked about the military, or if, if you want political aspect of yeah. the issues that we, you know, um, just uh, reviewed. But I think it's, it's also important to talk about the economic di uh, aspect of it, in that, well, generally speaking, as you uh, rightly mentioned, uh, many a uh, uh, time um, the tendency is to see, for example, natural resources being controlled by foreign you know, interest from foreign powers by and large. And generally speaking, uh, uh, interests that come from the former colonial uh, empire or power. Uh, that is, uh, for example, the case for Niger, which actually is a case I've been repeating quite a while, mm -hmm. um, uh, where basically we know that uh, Niger is very rich in uranium. Right. And basically, uh, if you consider uranium, for example, in, in Niger, it is uh, pretty much uh, under the control of a French company called Areva which actually use much of the bulk of the uranium to feed, uh, to fuel, so to speak, the French dependence on basically, uh, ura you know, uh, nuclear power, so to speak. Right. So uh, here, uh, very uh, important interests that actually lie within the continent uh, in terms of minerals, but also riches that actually tend to benefit, you know, in large part, um, uh, basically uh, foreign powers, but also uh, interests, local interests that might be tied to foreign powers, you know, right. uh, which actually is usually the case for government that is supported by, you know, foreign um, entities by and large. So uh, it's fair from the perspective to say that, uh, by and large, the continent population, which is at the grassroots level, tend to not benefit a lot right. from the resources that the continent has to offer, mm -hmm. which actually is triggering that uh, need basically to look for uh, other horizons, you know, for, for better basically opportunities. In that, well, the African continent in itself is far from being poor, yet, you know, we know that the population has been made poor in right. the way, for example, resources have been managed and, you know, uh, exploited by a lot. I was reading that seven of the poorest countries and the uh, with Muslim majority populations are on the uh, African continent. And one of them has a, I think per capita, it's like $765 right. a year. That's what the, the household uh, right. is living off of. With that type of poverty, we're talking about a dollar and a half a day somebody's living off of. Uh, with that type of poverty, it also points to, I think what you just mentioned, how local leadership is tied to their positions are tied to support from from uh, from external uh, forces, external powers, and that leadership is in place because that poverty uh, it, it it stays there, it doesn't go anywhere. What are some of the ways um, that that can be addressed, and in, in, in a way where uh, yeah, what what are some of the ways that, that you think can't it can be addressed, or is that something that 
that's really talked about in any real substantive manner? I, I think um, if we get to basics, that is basically getting to a point where we can empower grassroots local population mm. in way that they actually could um, identify their needs and see how they could use uh, locally available resources to address those needs. Right. And basically uh, have a voice, basically, in the way, for example, resources are managed. We would actually have achieved a major step in the direction of solving the issue of poverty in Africa. And I think that that's um, which actually brings us the issue of, you know, uh, a democracy and the need, for example, to give a voice to those who actually will, uh, tend to be marginalized in the management of uh, national resources, right. and basically allowing local population to decide how they want to really shape their interaction, their, their life, and their basically relationship with the rest of the world. And I think that actually is, is a key area, you know, a, a key uh, part that actually might um, work in the way of, you know, uh, providing solution to some of the issues that the continent faces today. Do you think the UN has a responsibility, even though it's a bit hamstrung when it comes to making decisions or passing resolutions that counter the, uh, the interest of nations with veto power, uh, U.S. being one of them, uh, but do you think the U.N. has a responsibility to address the destructive impact of the IMF and the, the World Bank with regard to how their involvement, how their supposed or so-called aid uh, basically strips each uh, receiving company, uh, country or uh, nation of their of economic uh, autonomy? Um, yeah, what what are your thoughts on? Uh, I think it 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 is a, another um, uh, tricky uh, type of uh, situation in that, well, generally speaking, when we speak of the UN, especially the Security Council, mm -hmm. it, it is mostly made of uh, you know, uh, especially as we look at those permanent uh, members. Right. Uh, we're talking about countries who actually uh, are, for the most part the major uh, shareholders or basically the major um, players in institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank. Right. So basically, uh, we don't have here uh, checks and balance in terms of, for example, one institution being in a position of basically uh, checking or basically uh, verifying what the other institution is doing in terms of, you know, uh, seeking the pros and cons for every, you know, uh, decision as they impact, basically, our local population. So from that perspective, the, the, the task or the role of the IMF, uh, I don't think uh, it would be uh, disingenuous to expect the UN, the, the UN itself to basically... Uh, uh, reshape or basically uh, uh, refashion, so to speak, uh, institutions such as the IMF, who actually have a big role in, you know, shaping the economies of many of the um, countries we have in, in in the U.S. Unless we basically reconsider the UN, the UN as it is right now, basically by reconsidering uh, uh, the way we attribute power within the yeah. Security Council, who has, you know, basically who could have basically. Uh, permanent membership to that institution, yeah. uh, or basically rethinking the institution uh, altogether. All uh, it is fair to say that it is more a vestige of the Second World War or the post-Second World War era than it is basically a reflection of today's reality or today's mm -hmm. world. Yeah. You know, the way China has 
they have reframed the way we see mm-hmm. um, aid uh, in Africa because it's normally been about, especially well, from a consumer standpoint, uh, from an American viewer standpoint, it's been about looking at commercials, save these starving children, donate a dollar a day, and you can feed somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas China has done something which is remarkably different in that they have given not just money, but they have they have contributed to building uh, infrastructure, uh, roads and, and, and ports and, and things of that nature, uh, which will not just benefit China, of course, in its own interest, but can also serve as a platform for the benefit of, of whatever connecting nations and cities and, and all of that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is that a model that I shouldn't say, is that a model? I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm in, I feel like, yeah, that's the model, right, we should be looking at. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? But I think when, when it comes to African journalists speaking, they, they, they have seen one model, which was the European model, or which over time was basically uh, uh, based on that colonial approach. You know, where basically you ex- uh, establish colonial empires and... Uh, uh, you know, exploit natural resources for the sake of what we call the colonial power, and the model of China or the Chinese model, which actually, uh, in the eyes of many Africans, is fairer. Even if obviously they might have some misgivings to some of the, the aspect of the Chinese intervention in Africa, sure. but here it's not unusual, uncommon, to hear some African tell you that the Chinese are not here just to to take to take stuff and or basically force themselves in, on uh, on us basically or basically takes uh, stuff by force by uh, generally speaking the way the the european did they usually here for trade you know where basically you have an exchange even if that exchange might not be always equal you know right. but here there is a sense of an exchange they are not just here to take away stuff for free you know or basically uh, without basically uh, giving something in return so uh, that from that perspective uh, tend to give the Chinese, you know, approach a certain uh, advantage or a certain basically uh, uh, positive aspect, you know, especially as compared to the European model, which was seen as basically a form of, you know, uh, spoliating uh, uh, local population and basically, uh, you know, exploiting natural resources without nothing, without much in return. You know, which actually um, is a general tendency of seeing the Chinese. Obviously, as we, we said, uh, the people might have issues with the Chinese, some of aspect of the Chinese intervention in Africa. Sure. But it's fair to say that there have been a tremendous amount uh, uh, that have been accomplished in terms of infrastructure. And today, it's fair to say that the Chinese tend to be the major players when it comes to building infrastructure yeah. uh, on the African continent. And the Africans, so, you know, can be very grateful for that. Yeah, and, and the next thing is simply manufacturing uh, facilities. And with manufacturing also comes uh, education, especially if we're talking about specialized uh, plants. Right. Uh, and and, and the, the human resources are already there. Right. So I, I don't know. I take, it, I take it with a grain of salt, a big grain of salt, right. when I see critiques, especially coming Western critiques, of Chinese involvement because it is it is so different and it is not simply about I'm going to string you along so that you remain dependent upon me but there's there's at the very least we're not saying it's, it's a perfect arrangement but it is 
it is definitely a departure from what we've what we've been looking at um, throughout the past. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Radio Islam family, if you are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Babakar Mbenge. Uh, he is a professor uh, at DePaul's University, DePaul University's Islamic World Studies Program, Religious Studies, teaches a multitude of uh, courses. And we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back in a minute. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 Eight zero six zero one four one. That's area code eight seven two eight zero six zero one four one, or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with this talent: one in two hundred and sixty thousand. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38 and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you, I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brothers Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this eight-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq al and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. Remember, folks, you can check out past episodes, get a little more in-depth information on our guests and topics at RadioIslam.com, and you can always check us out wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, or any other platform I haven't mentioned, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Last thing I'm going to mention, if you're new to the show, you can follow, like our social media pages, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
uh, and we'll add on some more stuff. Um, we need a Snapchat account. We need a Snapchat account. I don't know. I, I can't man it. Ibrahim, are, are you with it? Okay, Ibrahim's not with it. So um, we're going to leave Snapchat alone for right now. But anyway, you can find us at Radio Islam USA on those other social media platforms. We are joined in studio tonight having a great conversation with Dr. Babakar Mbenge. Uh, he is a um, professor of... Well, you know what? I mentioned all of these different things, and I'm not going to mention them all right now, right? But <laughs> to suffice it to say, he is, uh, he teaches at DePaul's University's uh, Islamic World Studies Program, Religious Studies Department, and History Department. And we've been talking about uh, really just all things related to Africa, uh, the continent. So if you are thinking that it was a country, right, you're not, you're not going to walk away from this program tonight with that same, same thought. So, uh, Dr. Babakar. Um, I wanted to, so we, we talked about China's involvement, we talked about uh, politics and diff, there are different regional um, issues and uh, ethnic issues and just there, there's a whole lot of things, a whole lot of stuff that we don't really, we're not aware of, right? But I want to get into talking about the diaspora. We talk about the African diaspora uh, and most often it's, it's attached to the trans, uh, transatlantic uh, slave trade and how that completely just altered the continent it altered um, it altered the world's population for, for, you know and that's not really an exaggeration uh, one of the things that uh, that I notice in speaking to my African brothers and sisters is that uh, most are polyglots you know they, they speak um, at least four languages um, sometimes more and when I think about what is where, how we're situated, uh, and I'll just leave my comments f uh, within the, looking at the United States. That's really not the case. Uh, generally, as, as a country, you know, as a, in general, but specifically African Americans, um, it's not often to see somebody that is speaking a multitude of languages. And I want to know from you, what do you think the impact of that is? Does that change? Do you, you feel that those in Africa who speak multiple languages, um, that they that there's a different worldview, a different outlook, as opposed to uh, that part of the, the 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 diaspora that is here in the United States. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think uh, I could not uh, agree more with the understanding that, well, generally speaking, the uh, tendency and the default in Africa is generally speaking to see um, uh, population who actually speak many languages. And I think that actually goes back to uh, the nature of, you know, basically Africa itself, uh, in that it is rare to see a, a context, a place in Africa where basically uh, there is only one language spoken. You know, uh, generally speaking, it is, even in the context of nation states as we have them today, uh, it's not rare to see countries where you have up to 100, 200 different languages uh, being spoken. And obviously that actually would put the African in the situation where they have to necessarily learn the other language in order to communicate. Mm. That doesn't mean that, well, they're not what we call lingua franca, you know, it's those type of regional languages that actually might serve uh, from a regional point of view. But nonetheless, uh, there is still that, uh, that expectation that every African would have a what we call 
a native language, you know, a native, a native lo local uh, language. And to communicate between themselves, African might resort basically to the language of their interlocutor or basically, you know, a, a, a lingua franca, uh, which actually explained that tendency to actually master uh, quite a few languages uh, because it is just a matter of necessity, you know, for so, mm -hmm. everyday communication. So the lingua franca in, in many spaces is, is, is French. Well, it depends. Uh, uh, before the colonial um, uh, experience, it yeah. tended to be in some part of Africa, Arabic, you know, uh, and I think those who are familiar with, for example, uh, history, especially the f uh, as it was described by a, a missionary, we came actually from, you know, the Americas. His name was uh, Edward Blyden, yeah. who actually uh, visited the continent at a very uh, important moment, really spoke along the line of the importance of Arabic right. as the language of communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only was Arabic... Uh, uh, lingua franca, but also Arabic letters, uh, Arabic, uh, you know, script was used basically to uh, write many African uh, local languages. So to this day, there are quite a few African languages that are actually written using the Arabic characters, sometimes modified to accommodate some sound that actually do not exist within the, the Arabic language. Really? But by and large, you know, many African languages are, you know, you know, written, you know, um, you, you, with the usage of what we call the ajami, which is basically that um, uh, alphabet, you know, that actually use, is based on the Arabic characters and, you know, even if it is uh, transformed or basically modified to accommodate right. certain local um, sounds, basically. So, so there, there, is, there is an outlook, a pre-colonial um, history uh, as to what was that common language. Right. And then there is the post-colonial. Absolutely. So um, when the French came in, for example, uh, mm -hmm. in, in much of West Africa where they dominate, right. um, uh, 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 at around 1911, you know, there was a French uh, general governor, his name was William Ponty, who actually addicted that, well, no longer is Arabic to be used, for example, in official communication which actually uh, started basically the, uh, uh, you know, um, the process of uh, instituting French, basically, other uh, official language for many African countries under French rule, obviously. And right. the same process could be observed also in places where uh, the British were, you know, the colonial um, rulers. Hmm. Yeah. So in this effort, because one of the things that is, and, and I don't know if this is, unique to um, to the United States, to North America, something in me tells me is not. But if it is this idea of trying to establish that reconnection uh, to Africa, to a homeland that, that many will, unfortunately, will never set foot on, but feel that there's something that has been taken away from them. And a big part of that identity is language. Um, and so you have you have people who are um, who are reaching out and trying to you know with with uh, things like um, what is it um, the the ancest ancestry dot com mm -hmm. trying to figure out where people are from right so I'm eighty seven percent my mine says eighty seven percent African so it's like uh, Ghana Nigeria Senegal mm -hmm. Benin um, but people look for those languages do you find that people are looking for a particular language 
or or is that something that you that you are aware that you are aware of? Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes the, the the issue of language might be very complicated because people sometimes might not just be of a certain language forever. You know, right. uh, it could be very fluid in that. Well, uh, somebody who actually started out as part of a ethnic group with a distinct, for example, language right. might migrate and then end up, you know, living with people from a different ethnic group who speak a different language and ultimately adopt that language and right. be part of that group. So uh, it could be very fluid. You know, that's why there is that saying in, in one of the uh, Arabic, uh, 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 you know, African language that, well, the last name doesn't reside anywhere, you know. Um, so basically it could be, you, you know, you cannot basically depend on people's last name to tell exactly uh, what ethnic group they belong to. Because, well, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the borders or the limits uh, between ethnic groups are not watertight. They're not really, uh, you know, uh, unassailable. They, you have very, very fluid, you know, basically uh, interaction, which actually create a very interesting situations sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, that, so there is a history of, of migration in Africa itself, thousands of years uh, as more... Uh, of the, the Europeans have moved on to the coastal areas right. where the, the African, uh, uh, those who are indigenous, find themselves moving further and further inward. Um, so, yeah, I think that a absolutely makes perfect sense that language languages would, would, would mesh or possibly change over time. Um, but speaking of languages like, um, like uh, Wolof or... Um, there's one I just I was just reading about. It, it starts with a J. Um, I think it's a in, J. In 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 it's uh, in, in uh, what part of like um in uh like a Burkina uh, Faso. I think it's a I think it's a J. Okay. Like uh, anyway, mm. all right. I, <laughs> I know it's a whole lot of languages, right? Good. But um, have you have you have you personally witnessed? A particular drawing towards any one particular language, Wolof, uh, Igbo, or, or any other one. No, absolutely. If you go to certain regions, yeah. you realize that some languages tend to dominate, and they actually will um, locally serve as that uh, lingua franca. Yeah, that's not unusual. For example, for uh, languages such as Hausa, which is very widespread. Yeah as well as Wolof, you know, in part of, you know, Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, uh, Mauritania, uh, Guinea, and the Gambia, uh, yeah. where basically it tends to be also an, another form of language, uh, Franca. So uh, languages might actually sometimes serve that role of, of lingua Franca, where ba basically it might not be what we call your native or basically ethnic language, yet you might resort to that language to communicate with others, you right. know, so um, that is actually quite common you know, in many parts of the continent, and west or east, you know, depending on, on where you are. I mean, you could uh, see the same process with the Swahili, Kiswahili in, in East Africa, right. uh, which basically also tend to, uh, you know, play the role of lingua franca. So, uh, but I think uh, one thing we um, could say regarding this language is that basically they impact each other. You know, they tend to 
uh, influences other, and you see borrowing from one language to the other, which also um, play uh, the role of basically, you know, making languages generally familiar, you know, right. to each other. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there's also something else. This last uh, question I, I, I like to pose or comment, like to hear your thoughts on uh, the idea of speaking multiple languages, also representing this uh, the possibility of having multiple solutions to problems. Uh, because a, a big part of language is when you learn any language, you learn the, the literature, you learn the, the stories, the right. narratives. Right. And in the United States where there's such a push for a one language, the preservation of English being that language, even though most people don't know that it was almost, German was almost the, right. uh, the, the, the state uh, national language. Um, but this idea of a singular thought process as opposed to one that encompasses multiple uh, possibilities. Uh, and do you see us, do you see the United States moving in that direction, even though it's, try, it, you know, there are some folks who are trying to dig their heels in? Yeah, I think uh, uh, there is no doubt that there is some wealth, some, some, some benefit in knowing many languages, in that it actually broadens one's worldview. But because uh, what I have, you know, uh, personally experienced is that, well, sometimes a language might have a, a concept, a term that is very specific to the language that cannot translate to another language, you know, uh, terms, terminology that actually are very specific to one language itself. So I, I think that, that's, that could be very enriching. I mean, the example I can give you is, for example, in, in the United States, we have that concept, for example, of... Um, uh, the orphan, for example, yeah. you know, for someone who has lost their parents. But we do not have the concept for somebody losing child. You know, there is no word, for example, to explain a mother who has lost a, a, a child. So uh, that actually could be uh, something that's missing. Maybe it is not deemed important enough, enough for, you know, for the English language to have. But that is actually a, 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 an example is a show, for example, the uh, type of you know, wealth that ca one can derive by knowing different languages at all. Uh, in that, it actually broadens one's you know, worldview and basically allows us to you know, appreciate the world you know, uh, even uh, in different terms, so to speak. Mm. Mm. So looking at those who have immigrated here mm. um, from the African continent, and I'm certainly not asking you to speak on behalf of everybody. <laughs> um, but do you think, or is it your feeling or observation that people have the intent to, um, have people left and forgot about Africa? Or do they see themselves as being able to to go back and contribute to uh, to, to its... Uh, to his restoration? Uh, I think uh, in all fairness, I mean, especially if it is voluntary immigration. Yeah. The general tendency for immigrants, you know, according to those experiences I have personally um, studied, is that generally speaking, when somebody immigrates, the intention is to always to come back. You know, um, that actually has been even for the United States, including, you know, European Americans the understanding was that, well, you go to the Americas to make money and then go back. Right. And then that actually has been the narrative. And uh, ultimately, we know that that is mostly not the case. You don't 
usually go back, you know, especially if you start having a family in place. Yeah. Um, but by and large, I think when we come to um, the, the African immigrants, uh, they also have that yearning of sometimes going back to Africa and basically contributing in their own right. And we know that even uh, through basically the flow of basically remittance and other forms of, you know, uh, support that, you know, the African diaspora send basically back to the continent that, well, there is that, that need basically to, to contribute or to basically uh, help the continent, um, you know, one way or the other. So from that perspective, I think it actually is uh, the common, you know, Im immigrant narrative of basically uh, going with the intention to, you know, c come back, uh, even if, you know, generally speaking, the reality might be different, might, you know, end up very differently from where you started or where, where you wanted to do. Hmm. And one thing probably I would have to ask to, yeah. to, to, to say regarding immigration in Africa is that we, we probably need to also realize, you, you, we spoke earlier about uh, the flow of immigration you know, uh, in the past, yeah. but I, I think it's still true that most African immigrants tend to immigrate within Africa itself. It is only a tiny portion that right. actually make it to the United States or to Europe for that matter. You know, in that, well... It's a, it's a long way to the United States for African. And uh, uh, it is a small portion, actually, of African who actually uh, can manage to actually um, travel to the U U.S. So uh, the bulk of African immigrants tend to be uh, immigration within the continent itself, you know, um, which actually is something probably that, that needs to be said regarding our flow, immigration flow by and large. I, th I think I appreciate you saying that uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is the misperception or a misconception that uh, that people are running <laughs> people are running out uh, of Africa um, but yeah tra traditionally over over time it has always been more of an internal because the landmass is so huge um, what are some of the uh, what are some of the things that Specifically, I'm going to speak this, ask this for, for African Americans. What are some of the things that those who have never been there, what are some of the misconceptions that they might have in terms of uh, even seeing Africa as a destination that they would want to visit? I mean, because some feel a natural pull and others have, have actually been totally turned off from the idea. Right. But I think uh, if you just um, uh, limit yourself, to the way Africa is portraying the media, maybe you would not want to basically uh, venture into uh, that place because, well, it is generally negative, you right. know. But I think there is a whole lot of uh, positive uh, on the continent that actually need to be highlighted. Right. Uh, and I know quite a few actually uh, of uh, friends who actually have migrated you know, from the United States and settled in Africa for quite a few decades, actually. Really? Uh, yes. So uh, it, it is not uh, the negative uh, perception that makes Africa. There is uh, a, a real Africa that actually I think Africans are known for being very welcoming and very basically open to um, uh, for the foreigners, you know. Right. And uh, uh, you see cultures that actually would give whatever they have, you know, basically in order to make sure that they welcome, you know, the, the guests or basically the, the visitors. So from that perspective, I think there is a whole lot that the continent has to offer. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, with the 
the expansion, uh, the, the, the vastness of the continent. It is up to the Americans, you know, um, who actually are seeking to visit to basically pick and choose where, which part of the continent they want to visit. I mean, because, I mean, the choices are many. And there are many places that actually could decently, you know, accommodate um, life as we, we have it here, or basically something close to it. Right. And obviously, uh, with room to, to learn, so to speak. You know. I, I want to add to this, um, to just for people to be aware of that, uh, and we talk about this kind of thing with some regularity uh, on the show, and that is the depiction of African Americans in the media and how the majority of that representation or depiction is negative. Right. Uh, and likewise, that same could be said for Africa in right. general, uh, and and to be really aware of that. Uh, and that's why I appreciate uh, Akon did a song some years back uh, about a Africa, mm -hmm. you know, says you need to go and, right. and see it, you know, talking about how, how, how beautiful it was. And that's not the, that's not the narrative that we get. And, um, and I'll just say, I appreciate you for, for sharing your, your insights, uh, your perspectives and giving your time Absolutely. to talk with us. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. I really enjoy it. <laughs> yes, alhamdulillah. Yeah. All right, Radio Islam family. Uh, we have come to the end of another edition of Radio Islam. Um, I do have a little something I want to share with you. Uh, there is this Friday night, there is going to be a program, um, a performance with uh, some of you may be familiar with them, Zeeshan B. Uh, it's kind of a, a soul, you know, a, a real mix of uh, singer, but he's going to be at the Beverly Arts Theater uh, this Friday. So you can actually just go to the Beverly Arts, um, Google Beverly Arts or Zeeshan B and you'll see. Uh, but um, we're hoping to be talking to him within the next couple of days uh, as well. Uh, that being said, we want to thank you for tuning in. As always, we look forward to talking to you again tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Central. We want to go ahead and thank our engineer at WCEV, Ramon, thank you very much. We thank our engineer and studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed of the host and the guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of the Sound Vision Foundation. Uh, that being said, we're going to go ahead and leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.